You are listening to the Maastricht Diplomat. Hi everyone, welcome back to the second episode in our series, Abducted Art and Cultural Theft. In this series, we will be discussing the debate over the repatriations of cultural artifacts held by former colonial powers and the modern fight against the illicit trafficking of looted objects. We will be conducting interviews with experts to discuss their approach to fighting for the restitution of cultural property. My name is Rue and I am a third year arts and culture student and the current head of the audiovisual team at the Maastricht Diplomat. I'm also joined today by my co-host Simon, who is a third year student of European studies and a journalist interested in culture and heritage. In today's episode, we will be joined by Leonie Bauknecht, an expert in the field of art-related crimes and cybercrime, and the leader of the organized crime team here in Limburg. In our last episode, we delved into the world of organized crimes. Specifically, we discussed how international laws work to combat these networks and how criminologists work to navigate the rule of law in different countries because the theft of an artifact may be illegal in the country it is stolen from, but once it moves across the border, it is not necessarily illegal in the next country. In part, we discuss the issue that many of these ancient pieces of art come from culturally rich but economically underdeveloped countries. Although this is surely true, in today's episode, we will be putting the spotlight on the stolen art and trafficking networks within Europe. Europe has some of the most sensitive heritage sites for theft, whether this be from churches, museums and universities, to name a few. Together we have spent the last two years in lockdown. But for those trading in the antiquities black market, business was booming, generating over 9 billion euros in just two years. Despite the pandemic, the trading of illicit artifacts has managed to grow and has the potential to tarnish the reputation of some very big stakeholders, including museums and art collectors. Working to combat these illegal trading networks, art crime police squads across Europe have united to focus on the issue of art-related crimes. We are honored to have Leonie here today to share with us her expertise on tackling organized crime on a local and international level. Limburg as a region borders both Germany and Belgium and is left vulnerable to the international trafficking of illegal art trade and synthetic drugs. Aside from being an expert on art-related crime, Leonie is also an expert on tackling organized crime in the fields of cannabis and synthetic drugs and the ways legitimate organizations are being misused in order to facilitate this. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Leone. You're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. So I want to start by asking you what your job actually entails, and how did you get into this? Yeah, that is kind of a long story. <laughs> but in short, I, I am a police officer. Before I went to the police academy, I studied law at the University of Leiden. And before that, I went to Italy for a year and studied uh, scenografia, which is like an art school doing design for the theater. And that's where my interest in arts and, and cultural heritage protection got started, being in Italy, being surrounded by, yeah, well. And I lived in Perugia and uh, in Umbria. It was a beautiful setting. I could see how proud Italians are of their cultural heritage. So uh, studying law and especially uh, criminal law, I ended up uh, writing my thesis on the theft of art crime, or of art and illicit trafficking. And then I started working for the police. 
But during the, the period of my thesis, I went and interviewed several people. And at that time, within the Dutch police, there was a, a, a special unit on art crimes. And actually, when I was there doing the interview, I said, you have this fascinating job. How can I end up at your chair? What's the way uh, to, to get there? And this man said, if you want my chair, then you, you just have to be a, a police officer. Because we are police officers, you have to go to a police academy, you have to learn uh, the trade, what goes on in the field, and then in the end you become somebody specialized in this, on this theme. Uh, so I ended up working for the police, but never again encountered on things uh, concerning with art, because within the Dutch police it's always been a very low priority topic. Mm-hmm. And about seven years ago, There was a period that the D66, which is a political party in the Netherlands, were quite big in politics. And their main leader, Alexander Pechthold, before he became a politician, he used to work for an auction house uh, as an auctioneer. Uh, So he was very passionate about art crime, things that he also saw within the market. And when he was in a position to do something, he stimulated that there should be a Dutch police database with stolen art and then our national unit got a restart they specifically asked for liaisons in the regions to be their contact points whenever there would be an art uh, related uh, uh, case Mm -hmm. they used to be situated just in Zoetermeer in the central bureau but they did not have contacts within the regions where the actual cases are done Mm -hmm. So they asked for special task holders for each region. And at this point, I was yeah, doing my job and I'm an expert mostly now on drug-related crime. Mm-hmm. So I was at this meeting and somebody showed a, a letter from the national police saying, oh my God, now we do need a coordinator in art-related crime. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I said, yes, <laughs> that one's for me. Thank you very much. And they were like, oh, don't ask. I, this is just something, yeah. d- please. And they were very happy because they, they didn't know, they didn't have a clue and they also didn't know yeah. Uh, yeah, what to do with it. So they were happy that I, I volunteered. And that's kind of where it started. This is just a a special task. This is not my normal daily job, but I've been connected to the National Bureau. And whenever there are Limburg cases, I'm usually involved in uh, advising our colleagues in Limburg. And so the national team is kind of an intelligence team. So they don't have operational police officers working there. They need us in the regions to organize capacity to to act on cases and stuff like that. So I'm kind of the in-between and not conducting any cases myself, but helping them get started. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that one of your main fields is also the fight against drugs. We also wonder, is there a connection between illicit trading and artifacts and the international drug trade? I think there is. I've also seen examples of people that we know are in the drug trade and they end up with paintings and we know cases that, for instance, the Van Gogh that was stolen here in the Netherlands showed up uh, in the hands of the mob. So we know that there is this connection. 
And we also know that usually the art is not used because it's beautiful to hang on the wall, but it's used because of its value. When, for instance, there is this deal going on in drugs and they need a pond to make sure uh, that if something goes wrong, yeah, well, there is money yeah. uh, on the table, but it's not actually money. It's yeah. a painting. In that sense, it's used, but it's also used that we know that the Italians tried to do this to negotiate less penalty. So, for instance, they got caught and then they said, listen, I got caught, but I also have this very interesting painting. Can we trade something for less um, time? Yeah, less time. Exactly. Wow. And does that actually work? I'm just uh, wondering if the trading... Maybe works. one time. One time. <laughs> <laughs> No, what I know, and that's also a shadow part, that, for instance, the art is usually very uh, well protected with insurance. The people who lost the painting will go to their insurance company and say, can you refund me? So these companies, they are trying to get those paintings returned because they paid a lot of money from their fund to the victim, but they also want to get the fund back. Yeah. So they ask usually a lot of private detectives, to look for those paintings. So where have they gone? Because if they returned, either the insurance company, they asked the victim, okay, do you want your painting back? Or can we have our money back? And there's also this shadow part that criminals are dealing with insurance company. That's also not really ethical that you are buying something back from the person who stole it. Yeah. But yeah. they... Will not uh, admit that uh, they were the one that stole it. Yeah, and is this also with museums, uh, not just private collectors, that the art is insured? Yeah, but there's also a lot of that is not insured. A lot of yeah. art that is so valuable that it's not possible Before. to insure yeah. it. Well, you're not the owner. You stumble upon a stolen mm. piece of art. There's a lot of things you can do with it, and especially in the criminal uh, markets, it's also something that can be traded or can be pawned. That's very interesting that it's used like a, yeah. a pawn in that kind of way. Yeah, and that's what I try to explain to my colleagues because, well, when it comes to priority mm-hmm. um, within the Dutch police, art-related crime has no priority. Mm-hmm. But when I try to explain, it's not about the art, it's about the fact that it's something that is very valuable, mm-hmm. that is not in any register. So it's very easy to use art also in a financial way. And we call this the financialization of the art market. A few years ago, when it comes to money laundering, for instance, there's a lot of regulations, anti-money laundering regulations, that banks, that when they know, okay, this I'm paid with cash money or there is this traffic going on, There are a lot of red flags and and banks have to report it to the FIU. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you heard about, if you know what the institution of the FIU is, but every country in the world has a a financial investigation unit and banks, but also galleries, but also car trade or gemstones. Or Mm -hmm. if if there is special traffic which is not okay, Mm -hmm. then they have to report to the FIU that this transaction is done and the art industry is also uh, obliged to report this to FIU but they don't yeah. uh, so <laughs> but we see that within the banks there's a lot of regulation going on and there's also a lot of checks going on mm-hmm. so we see this change of all new 
kind of financial possibilities that you can do with art, they pop up. Because they know this is interesting because you can trade, you can loan, you can uh, do a lot of things with art. Mm -hmm. You see the shift into the financialization of the art market that it's kind of shadow banking in some sense. Mm -hmm. And here within the university, there's this associate professor called uh, Christoph Rausch. And this is his main field of expertise. So we are currently cooperating in a group called Trends for FI. So it's Trends for Financial Investigation. We're we're seeing this topic and we are now uh, working with a premium team of students. It's a master program here also at the university. And uh, one of the teams is looking into this field of taxation of art, the way it's played with this financialization of the art market and the value. Sometimes something is really high in value sometimes it's really low in value Mm -hmm. and who is determining yeah the price yeah and you can play with this you can play this for the with this for the reason of tax evasion Mm -hmm. but also for the reason of money laundering yeah and so all these things and that's where also the connection is with the drug world because there's so much money made in the netherlands with the synthetic drug they have to find ways to launder their money and this is what we think is going on, but we have no proof. So just yeah. to be clear, <laughs> this is a main concern mm-hmm. that we think could happen. We also have some examples that it is happening. Mm-hmm. But when I try to address, well, galleries or people who have businesses in this field, the first thing they ask me, okay, Leonie, sounds very interesting and I understand con- your concern, but... give me an example and what should I do? Because I don't know what to look for. I don't see this happening. Help me. And I think that's the main part where we are now is try to establish a good dialogue with Mm -hmm. everyone to see, okay, what is going on? And if this is going on, what can, how can we prevent this from happening and work together? And then the repressive part of the police is the final station because mm-hmm. we have very limited capacity of yeah. doing our investigations. Mm-hmm. So we have to be smart in, okay, what do, what do we do and what do, do we yeah. don't do? But before that, it's much more interesting to see, okay, how can we start a dialogue, raise red flags, help yeah. the industry recognizing what's going on and the way they are maybe unconsciously facilitating organized crime. And that's very interesting because there's some things like, like obviously using art to launder money and tax evasion, that's something. But the other shadow parts is, like you said, something that isn't part of the necessarily normal dialogue of what you think art can be used for. No. With regard to the Singularan heist during the COVID-19 where the Vincent van Gogh painting was looted, by any chance did you work this case or see similarities to other cases that um, you know of or... What can you tell us about how the investigation kind of works once art has been stolen? I personally did not work on this case, but mm-hmm. my colleague Richard Bronswijk did because he is the national coordinator in Zoetermeer. Okay. So he knows about all cases. Mm-hmm. And when he got a, a message saying that this happened, he was directly on the case. Mm-hmm. And we are currently also cooperating a lot with a private detective called Arthur Brandt. I don't know if you've heard him. Yeah, Yeah, he is fantastic. For those of you who don't know him, there was this uh, television series about his work. 
so you can review it. It's it's in Dutch, uh, of course. But he he has this position that he talks to criminals, he talks to the people close to the criminals, but he also talks to the police. So when something happens, these paintings go very fast from from one hand to another. But the world of people who do these type of heists is small. So we have, of course, people like Arthur Brandt who have their connections and mm-hmm. can ask questions. Okay, this happened. Have you heard anything? Do you have any idea? And he's not from the police, so people talk to him. For some reason, people in the art industry find it difficult to talk to the police. They find it difficult to reach out to us. So people like Arthur are very helpful to be the in-between. And then if there's really interesting information, it will end up uh, at the police. Mm-hmm. You must have heard about all these, uh, it's like encrypted telephones that were cracked. And there was also huge in, uh, international investigations. Yeah. And several of the databases that people were using encrypted telephones were were cracked. And now we, and we is the international community of law enforcement, have millions of millions of data on encrypted uh, messages. And within these encrypted messages were also messages on the topic of art. So we got also information, okay, who is talking about this painting, for instance. And... During the COVID period, I think there were maybe two or three similar cases. And I think it all had to do with the fact that criminals would be very keen to have an important painting in their possession. So they can use it for either less penalty when they get caught or use it for trading. And that's what we see a lot. So I was not working on this case, but we did have in the recent past some Limburg cases. I don't know if you heard about the... It was kind of a massive break-in and quite hostile, actually, at the Eyewitness Museum in Beek. Yes, yeah. I came across this one, yeah. Yeah, it was, I, d- I don't know when this was, it maybe already two years ago, but mm. it is an, uh, a war museum on the Second World War. And during the night, people actually drove in with a, a van into the museum and stole a lot of Nazi uh, uniforms. So that's also art-related, maybe in the broader perspective, it's No, not considered art, but in our field, that's also what we look into. So uh, a team of detectives was set on the case. And uh, unfortunately, in the end, it was not possible to arrest people. There was not enough proof. But we saw similarities with the case in, I think it was Denmark. So it's very interesting to see, okay, why would people want to steal Nazi uniforms? And there is also a market uh, for this. So there are several ways an art case can start. You have a general break-in in in a house. Somebody is taking Mm -hmm. art, but also museums that get robbed. Or a few years ago, we had an art napping. I don't know if you heard about that term, but now you do. It was two dealers, uh, art dealers, that were asked to sell several pieces And at the moment they were doing the sale, the people who were buying it from them, they left with the art. Mm -hmm. And then they said, okay, you can buy it back from us. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was a a, a terrible case in that sense. Because there were also people involved that were into this network of organized crime Mm -hmm. so these art dealers they were kind of they were the victims of it and that's i think the one of the most interesting cases that i've personally been working on 
was two years ago during TEFAF. Mm -hmm. And oh. I think you all heard about TEFAF. TEFAF is, I think, from my point of view, the most interesting international art market in the world that is yearly in Maastricht. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are very proud as Maastricht that we are hosting TEFAF. But from my point of view, there's also a little bit of a dark side at TEFAF. And it's especially on the topic of the ancient arts when it comes to the archaeological parts mm -hmm. and the looting. Because everything that's on sale at TEFAF is very well checked. Before the TEFAF opens, there's this, they call it the vetting, that they check everything that's on sale, if it's, if it's okay, if it's uh, real, if it's TEFAF worthy, yeah. if it's special enough uh, to be at TEFAF. Because also when you, you buy something from TEFAF, it should be perfect. It should be But yearly, we know mm. that there are behind the scenes things not really okay. Because we are in this network of specialists, especially also archaeologists, and experts in the field of illicit trafficking. And they call the police and they say, listen, I was walking at Tefaf and I saw this statue and I'm thousand percent sure that I know that this is looted. And then we have a problem. Mm -hmm. So what we used to do in the past years, we would obviously talk to the standholder, say, listen, we have this information and somebody claims that this is not okay. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about the object? Mm -hmm. And then... What we stumble upon is that these gallery owners say, yeah, well, listen, I have all the papers. This is where I got it from. I bought it at Christie's. This is the provenance. You can look, you can check. And at TEFAF, there is this, they call it the code of conduct, that everything uh, that is on sale, there, there should be proper due diligence Mm -hmm. uh, by the uh, standholder. So that they say, okay, everything that's sold should be checked by the Interpol database mm -hmm. or it should be checked by the um, art loss register mm -hmm. which is a private company but also has a lot of information on stolen art but they don't have information on looted art okay. because the main problem with looted art is when something was looted from an archaeology site it is not always reported stolen because mm -hmm. it was still in the ground. It was not found yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so looters, uh, these tombaroli, the, the people who are actually digging in the ground, mm -hmm. they take something from an archaeology site. So the archaeologists that are working at the, the site they don't know that it's gone. They never saw it, the piece. Yeah. But they have the knowledge of what should have been there. Yeah. So they know that they have this idea what could be missing. And then when at some point these items show up at the international market mm. and also at TEFAF, they seen it before somewhere connected to people who were convicted. Right? Okay. Mm. So because a lot of these items were looted maybe uh, 20 years ago mm -hmm. uh, and then found but not returned. But the problem is that we talk to these standholders and say, listen, mm. this is happening. And then what we used to do Because they always say, oh, this is very terrible. I never wanted this to happen. I don't want to sell this anymore. They are in good faith. And we used to start this kind of diplomacy way of returning it to a country of origin. Mm -hmm. okay. And then our heritage department has a large role in this mm -hmm. uh, on making sure that it's 
going to the right government mm-hmm. or a museum. Yeah. But that's what we used to do. But now, also with my knowledge of organized crime and the money laundering, mm-hmm. we do tend to see the same players every time that come up with these looted items. And okay. every time they say, oh no, really? I didn't yeah. know. And now we are kind of fed up with that because we say we don't believe anymore that you are in good faith. You yeah. very well know how this business is run. Yeah. And I'm sure that Professor Yates has talked a little yeah. bit about yeah. this. And so there is this kind of yeah new way of doing things that we are now trying to say, listen, dealers at TAFAF, we expect you to really do good due diligence Just checking the art loss register is not enough. If something came from Italy, for instance, or Egypt, you have to check with the local authorities. What is this that I have in my possession? Could this be looted? Is this something that you're looking for? We expect you to investigate what you're selling. And if you can show us that you did a proper investigation Mm -hmm. about the provenance, perfect. Yeah. But if you don't do this, and we have proof from our experts that something is actually looted, yeah, then you have a problem. And yeah. then we start an, an, an and criminal invest- investigation. And that's where we are now. Two years ago, I did two seizures at TAFAF, just the day before they closed because of COVID. It was the yeah. first day of lockdown. And I see an Egyptian vase. It was this high? Yeah, that is for listeners not very... <laughs> It was about one meter 20 or something. Big vase, alabaster vase. (laughs) And so from within our uh, network, somebody said, I'm thousand percent sure that this was looted from an archaeology site in Egypt. So it was already out of the ground. And then it was in a storage room in Egypt at the archaeological sites. Mm -hmm. And there it was stolen. So we had a a report of the fact that it was stolen from Egypt Uh and we could show it to the gallery owner. And they had a a very different description, of course, where this came from. These objects, they get a false identity. But then, and that's the very difficult part for law enforcement and for the police, we have to prove Mm -hmm. that the the person who is owning uh, this object at this point, that they were not in good faith that they knew about the fact that this was illegal. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult to prove. There was another, I seized two objects. Mm -hmm. So there was a vase and there was also a marble head of the god of Apollo. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. A really beautiful statue. And I got a a sign from an archaeologist. He worked for the Carabinieri and he Mm -hmm. was at a seizure at a freeport. Do you know what a free port is? No. No, a free port is it's actually an in-between location, usually around airports, where people can store objects so they don't officially enter the, the country, but they are in between. So they don't need to pay all import licenses, fees, because they stay in this depot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also... an concern these depots Mm -hmm. because there's no check so it's a free zone yeah Mm -hmm. and objects can easily been taken or or, or moved from these zones and nobody is really looking into it yeah so this archaeologist was at this freeport in geneva at some point 
where an Italian trafficker, and, and he was convicted of illicit trade in cultural goods, mm. he had thousands of these items in this free port. Oh, really? oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, about yeah, 3,000 items or something. And Ooh. this ar- archaeologist was asked to make a database mm-hmm. of all the items that were in the free port. Mm-hmm. So, and if you have to make this database yourself of all these objects, and he was there, yeah, yeah then... People who are in the art world, they recognize things. If they've yeah. seen an item once and they really, really properly looked at it, yeah. they will never forget it. Yeah. So he said, Leonie, I'm 1000% sure this marble head was at the Freeport in Geneva. I've seen it. Uh-huh. And it was connected to this trafficker that was convicted. So that for me was enough to talk to our district attorney to say, okay, I think... This is a case. I don't know if we can come up with a conviction in the end, but Mm. I'm pretty sure that with this object, there's something wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there was enough ground to do the seizure. And in the end, we had to return it, unfortunately, to the gallery owner. Because when it comes to illicit, especially the the looted items from archaeology, from the the Mm -hmm. field, this, this man, and his name was Bekina, a very famous Italian uh, you should look it up there's a very interesting book about it as well the Medici conspiracy don't know oh, about yes. you yeah so Bekina was also in this field and he was as a gallery owner bringing this all this illicit archaeology mm. on the market but he had these tombaroli who were working in the field for him to take it out of the ground mm-hmm. so then the moment that it was taken out of the ground, they would make a Polaroid picture mm-hmm. of the item when it was still covered with mud and th- from the ground. Then they would take it to a place where it was cleaned and made beautiful. And then they would make beautiful pictures to, to get it sold on the market. Mm-hmm. And then they would make a, a message saying, I did not I- illegally excavate this. This is from uh, bought at an auction at blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so what we realized in the end, in this case, that we asked the Italian Carabinieri about Mm -hmm. this item because it was at the Freeport of Bekina. Mm -hmm. And they said, yes, this was in his possession, but we do not have the Polaroid pictures of this head with the mud. So we cannot prove that Bekina did know that this was illegally excavated. The link between getting it out of the ground and the possession of Bekina, that link was missing in the investigation of the Carabinieri. Mm-hmm. So that's why we cannot prove that yeah. Bekina was... But from my point of view, I think that everything connected to Bekina is so contaminated that if yeah. you are at the upper segment of the international art world, mm-hmm. you should not want to handle anything concerning Bekina. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I confronted this gallery owner saying, okay, you are trading something that was in the possession of Bekina. Yeah. And well, he said, who? Well, I'm really pleased that we have managed now to have a good dialogue also with the TEFAF organization. Mm-hmm. For instance, we've now sent a letter to all the standholders at TEFAF this year 
so that they know, okay, we're, the police is going to check. We warn them, and the TAFAF is, uh, organization is helping us to reach out to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and hopefully, it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like you said, it's also about the dialogue. It is time. very, very much about the dialogue. Yes. Yeah. To go on what you were talking about as well before with the looted artifacts coming from specific regions according to interpol the world is facing unprecedented looting of cultural property particularly from war-torn countries so from syria or iraq as some of the countries they name yeah and they say it's becoming more and more difficult to determine once these artifacts get to collectors or museums if they have been taken illegally i am just a police officer i didn't study art uh, yeah. i didn't study archaeology i'm interested in it but i'm not an expert mm-hmm. so That's why our cooperation with the experts is very, very important Mm -hmm. because they know, okay, in this area, this should be there or this was there or this is documented that this was there. Yeah. And then we can have this conversation because they changed the paper trail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're not going to say that this is from Syria. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because (laughs) then we're there and especially the heritage department is Mm. uh, responsible to do this, is to say, okay, but then the Middle East region is not sufficient. You have to be precise. Where did it come from? So when it comes to provenance, it's not just the the trail from, okay, who had it in its possession and before that and before that and before that, but also the starting point, where does this originally came from? Yeah. And that's also where the buyers, I think, come in play. Mm -hmm. Because you should not want to buy something if you don't really know that it's not okay. So you, as a buyer, you should also ask. But I'm sure that 90% of the people want to do well and have a moral uh, compass. Mm -hmm. And they don't want illicit trade happening. And would you say as well, when once you start determining... You said your your heritage department, if they determine kind of the area it comes from, do you find that certain regions, especially if they're within a conflict, it's harder to send them back? Or do there become conversations of how to kind of return the artifacts? That I think and that's the, yeah, that's the diplomatic part that they're dealing with. Okay. Yeah. And, but the thing is that, especially with conflict areas, it, it also takes a while for these objects to show up at the at the market. Yeah. So and you were also saying that, that we see this shift mm-hmm. from the actual market to the online market. Yeah. Uh, so there's also a lot of things going on online. But uh, yeah, when when it comes to yeah, you will never see something from Syria at Tevaf. But yeah. when written down that it is from Syria. Yeah. But but you have to be an expert to see if it is or I- if it isn't. Maybe we should also talk about the internet, because I also read that you're an expert on cybercrime. Cybercrime is taking more and more time and resources of prosecutors all over the world. Also, so-called NFTs, which are standing for non-fungible token, are the newest object of desire for numerous art collectors. They are digital, unique pieces of art that are based on a blockchain technology. And they are quite pricey, partly. Some of them can score as high as tens of millions of dollars. I think I saw one for a hundred million. And that's ex- insane. <laughs> and I don't really know what to think about this development. We have an, an, an app group. All, all people who are working in the police, but also the district attorney, that whenever there's news 
on these topics. We share it in our app. And that's why I know that maybe two weeks ago, we did our first seizure of an NFT in a criminal case. But when we do searches in home, we look for the big television screen or the the car Mm -hmm. or the boat or uh, what is worth money, what has value. And police officers, we we are not yet aware that uh, non-fungible tokens are, well, we know that they are there, but where where can you find them? How do, what do they look like? They're on a computer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then you have to have digital experts to find them and explain what it is. That when you buy something, for instance, from people, you do get kind of a certificate and a small something phys- physical as well. But if you do not see this at a home, then you don't know that somebody actually owns something worth $36 million. Yeah. It is not registered like a, a house. Uh, or mm-hmm. uh, So that's what we look if we want to confiscate money, mm-hmm. uh, illicit criminal money. Yeah, then we look at what's in their bank account and what is their re- real estate and the things that we can see, things that are registered. Yeah. But yeah, the NFTs, yeah, it's, it's this whole new world yeah. that we also need to discover. But from my point of view, I think that criminals already have found their ways in handling with uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs. And yeah, it's, they are so much smarter than we are, <laughs> For, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. 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 We also read about the Joint Cybercrime Action Task Force. I think it was launched in 2014 and it helps fighting cybercrime within and outside the EU. The Netherlands is also part of it. What what we as an art crime unit are involved in is called the Pandora Cyber Patrol. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, twice a year, all law enforcement officers within the EU that want to cooperate have a special week that they join in. Last two years were unfortunately online, but we scout the online market, the online art market. So we look what's on sale. For instance, I don't know if you've ever seen Kataviki, which is a Dutch online trading. And a lot of antiquities and also art is also sold on Kataviki. A lot of fake as well. So what we did is cooperate with experts also, again, archaeologists, art experts that were looking, okay, what's what's currently on trade and what can we see? What can we, can we determine if this is legal or illegal? And with this intelligence, we also started a dialogue, for instance, with Kataviki, because everyone can go and buy something on, on Kataviki. It's like a marketplace. They say this auction is hosted by an expert and you also see who, who this expert is. And then I get this feeling, okay, this is an expert. So he's checking on all the goods that are in this auction, if this is okay or not. Yeah. But not all the experts are at the same level, um, mm-hmm. as you can say. It's good also for Kataviki to, to notice, okay, be careful. Some players that are in the illicit trade are misusing your platform. So, yeah, we've been now doing these cyber patrols about 
two or three years. And they're very successful in, in seeing what's happening on the online market. But then it is an international trade. So for instance, for Katawiki, we see people who are in the United States having their objects in the United States, offering them through Katawiki, which is a Dutch-based marketplace, selling them to people around the world because everybody can buy something at Katawiki. You don't know, or you you may think, okay, somebody is selling something from the uh, United States, so the, probably the item is in the United States. Mm. But you're not sure. sure. Yeah. It could also be, yeah, could be anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And so where... If we, if we see, okay, we see an, a potentially illegal object, where do we go to? Yeah, we, we should try and contact the seller, but yeah. it's also not also clear who that is. And like you mentioned, the sale of this stolen art is very active on an international and global scale. Yeah. So to tackle this, you need, obviously, the international network of law enforcement. And I guess that's where... Interpol and Europol and UNESCO, they kind of step in. The Interpol has created a database, as you've mentioned, of stolen works of art that combines the description and pictures of 52,000 pieces, as far as I'm aware of. I think it's even over 52,000. And it's the only database at the international level with certified police information of stolen and missing artifacts. Correct, yes. How... Do you believe that this database is working and do you see it actually improving kind of this international effort to combat it? And does it help as well with jurisdiction of asking a certain police force of a country to invite them to come along and work to combat, for example, an art crime network or something like this? Yeah, what I find very positive about the Interpol uh, database is that it is very user-friendly it became very user-friendly because there's now an app i don't know yep. if you've heard yes. about the id art app yeah but if you don't already put it i have it on my phone and yeah. it's really cool <laughs> it is really nice because anyone in the world can use this app now mm-hmm. it's, it's for free and if you see an interesting object that you think hmm this could be stolen you take a picture with your camera and it checks the picture with the pictures in the database. And we ha- already had some matches. So wow. yeah, so it's it's working. Yeah. Yep. So that's on the positive side. From pol- the police point of view, uh, mm. there's also a little difficulty with the international database, Interpol database, because you need to tick to tick a lot of boxes mm-hmm. to get the item into the Interpol database. So for mm-hmm. instance, you you need to know the measurement of the objects. How big was it? And a lot of people, maybe you as well, have something at home hanging on your wall, but maybe you don't really know exactly the measurements. You bought it and you liked it, but yeah, when it's stolen, did you did you have a picture? Did you have a, a catalog of this object? What kind of information did you have? A lot of people, they, they don't even have pictures of the art. And it's in their home, it's on their wall. How big was it? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, one meter. Yeah. If you're not 100% sure what the measurements are, you cannot get the object in the Interpol database. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. So that's why we have our own Dutch database, which is a, a more user-friendly in mm-hmm. that sense. So whenever somebody also eh, comes, the, the house was burgled and you had this painting with uh, flowers uh, and, a, and a little girl and, and it was by, you know, 
somebody, then yeah. then you you can report this, and then in our Dutch database that is okay. And okay. He, uh, the description itself, we don't need a picture. It would be helpful, but if you don't have it, you don't have it. Yeah. And then you can still ha- have this description. There has been this debate for the repatriations of the stolen colonial art and whether also policing units should work alongside international discourses over whether museums should return looted artifacts from the colonial period. I don't know whether you've come across any cases of such a thing or how you question the colonial kind of connotations to certain artifacts and whether you believe in if these end up on auction houses, should they be returned to the countries of origin or if that's even a possible thing to do? Yeah, I think the main starting point would be, again, the dialogue with the mm-hmm. countries involved. We have had cases here as well, the objects that show up. Mm-hmm. And this is also really something that our heritage department is involved in, mm-hmm. more than we as a police. But what I really was happy about that there was this committee, but not on this topic, but more on Nazi art and uh, looted art during uh, the wars. It's just the same discussion. So you see now more willingness to, in a broader sense, talk about these issues mm-hmm. and see, okay, who is involved? How did things end up in the Netherlands? On what conditions? Mm-hmm. The rest of it is also not okay. Yeah. And so when I studied law, you have this saying, it's called fruits of a poisonous tree. It starts off wrong and then you shouldn't be happy in trading it or owning it. But for instance, now in the Ukraine, things are also are moved out of the Ukraine for safety reasons. But maybe you don't really know exactly. Yeah. And so you have to do research on why was this moved? Why was it taken from the country? Mm-hmm. And what was the reason for it? There can be a good reason for it when it's from a protectional point of view. But it depends a little bit who is saying that he can also protect. (laughs) Saying that you're protecting it while you're actually just taking it away and you're stealing it from them. Well, thank you, Leonie, for coming and speaking to us and giving us this insight into the world of what the policing looks like, especially here in Maastricht and Limburg. And for our listeners who are part of the community, This is not something that comes straight to our mind, so it's extremely interesting for us. Download the ID app by Interpol and continue the dialogue. As Leonie has said, this the way that we learn more about the art trafficking world and the efforts of the police force to combat this, whether it be at our local level or international level, is through dialogue. So thank you, Leonie, and thank you for listening. This episode was written and hosted by Rue and Simon. Thank you to Leonie for participating in today's episode. The music was created by Stone Ocean, and the audio technician was Brendan. The executive producers were Rue and Simon. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You've been listening to the Maastricht Diplomat, 